Before I get started this morning, I want to uh, correct something that uh, Will Davis shared with you last Sunday as we began this series, um, God's Will and You. Um, Will said at that time at the beginning that the place where we as believers tend to go to find truth is in the iPhone. And I want to correct that this morning that it's not in the iPhone that we find truth, but it's in Google search where we find truth. And I want to demonstrate that to you this morning. Here as I do this search in Google, waiting on the will of God, you're going to see here that um, is it rolling? My my computer has uh, frozen. <laughs> In my Google search that I did uh, prior to this morning and typing in waiting on the will of God, Google said that there were some 378 million results of that search. And so if time permits, we're going to go through each one of those (laughs) this morning. In all seriousness, we are in a series titled God's Will and You. And today we are looking at, boy, I'm I'm really having a hard time this morning. (laughs) Today we are going to be looking at waiting on the will of God. You know, in our American culture, uh, we have an aversion to waiting, don't we? Um, We wait in lines at the grocery store, at the banks, at the restaurants, at theaters, at sporting events, amusement parks, traffic, um, even the airport. Think about this. You, if you're checking a bag or if you need to get your boarding pass, you wait in line at the counter. And then you go through TSA security, and you wait in line there. And then as you go to your gate and they begin boarding, you wait in line again. And after you land and pull up to the gate, everybody stands up in the plane, and once again, you wait in line to get off of the plane. Uh, Think about this for a moment. Coast-to-coast travel in this country in the early 1800s, it took six months to travel coast-to-coast by wagon train. By the mid-1800s, in a steam engine train, you could cross this country coast-to-coast in four weeks. Well, how about today? You can do it in a car in 42 hours and 30 minutes, although if you've got my wife riding with you, it's not going to (laughs) happen. 
By Amtrak, today you can do it in 28 hours and 10 minutes, or you can take a plane and do it in five hours and 24 minutes. And yet, even then, when we fly cross-country, if we're 30, 45, an hour late, we still gripe and complain, don't we? Yes, we have an aversion to waiting in this country. And our series titled, God's Will and You, and in particular today as we look at waiting on the will of God. Last week, Will Davis, uh, no pun intended, uh, began by the series by looking at wanting the will of God, first wanting the will of God. Next week, Michael Loudermilk is going to be looking at wrestling with, wrestling with the will of God. And then the following week, Don Yates will wrap up the series taking a look at walking in the will of God. Today, as we look at waiting on the will of God, we're going to look at Abraham. And specifically, we're going to be taking a look at chapters 15 through 17 of the book of Genesis. And one of the things that, as we recall from Will's message last week, is Will pointed out the two distinctions between the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God. The hidden will of God or his decorative or sovereign will, uh, that will by which God brings to pass whatever he decrees. Uh, this is hidden to us until it happens. As Will pointed out last week, yes, we can know God's hidden will after the fact. Or as I like to say, we can know the hidden will of God by looking in the rear view mirror. That is juxtaposed with the revealed will of God, his preceptive or moral will. Uh, this is God's will revealed in laws and commandments, uh, which we have the power but not the right to break, that God calls us to walk with him according to, to his revealed will, that will that is revealed to us in the pages of his word. But there's actually a third way that the scriptures speak of the will of God, that is his will of disposition. This is describing God's attitude towards certain things. It reveals what is pleasing to him. Uh, take, for instance, in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says that God desires that all would come to faith and that none would perish. That is God's will of disposition. And one of the things that I think is important to us is that as we look primarily at God's revealed will juxtaposed with God's hidden will, 
I think there are things that we need to call to mind out of Deuteronomy 29.29, where Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Notice he says the secret things. In other words, that there are things that God has willed to not make known to us. Um, Even in eternity, God will be the creator, we will always be the creature. We will not know, we will not always or ever know fully what God knows. And yet, hear this promise that the secret things, there are secret things that will remain with God. But the things revealed, he goes on to say, belong to us and to our sons forever. In other words, that there are things that God has willed to make known to us. And so here we see Moses juxtaposing God's hidden will in the secret things as opposed to God's revealed will in the things revealed. And notice that he says that those things revealed, those things that God has willed to make known to us, they belong to us and to our sons, our descendants forever. And to what purpose? Just for head knowledge? No. He says that we may observe or that we may obey all the words of this law. And so, as we begin our study in waiting on the will of God, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Here in Genesis chapter 15, we begin to see this conversation that Abraham is having with God. Uh, Here, uh, we find that Abraham had previously been told over in Genesis chapter 12, where God had told uh, Abram, he said that, I want you to leave your land and your family, and I want you to go into a place that you do not know of. I want you to go into a place where I will make you into a great nation that I will bless you, that I will make your name great, and that you will be a blessing, that I will bless those, uh, bless whoever blesses you, and I will curse whoever curses you, and that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is a promise that God has made to Abraham, not only the promise of land, but the promise of of descendants. He reiterates that promise over in Genesis 13 and in verse 16 after um, Abram, Abram and Lot have gone their separate ways in the land of Canaan. He says in verse 16 of chapter 13, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And so it is that Abram 
receives this promise of descendants, and not only the promise of descendants, but a multitude, an innumerable number. And now we find in chapter 15, it's some 10 years later, um, when Moses, uh, when Abram left Haran to go into the land of Canaan, it says that he was about, he was 75 years old. And now 10 years later, uh, Abram is the age of 85. And so we find here after these promises or with these promises in mind, we find Abram having this conversation with God. Verse 1, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Let me pause here for a moment and say that one of the things that we have to be careful is to not assume that the experience of any Old Testament saint is necessarily the experience that we can expect. Case in point, here is Abram receiving uh, direct revelation from God. Uh, Abram spoke with God. Abram, it says uh, that he was a friend of God. And so Abram has this, uh, this direct communication with God. And here God is appearing to him in a vision. Uh, these Old Testament appearances of the Lord are thought to be uh, what are referred to as a theophany or an appearance, an angelic appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. You see, our experience now in this dispensation is the fact that you and I have God's complete written revelation to us. We have everything within this book that God has willed to reveal to us everything that we need for faith and practice. And it's within the pages of this book that you and I are to be discerning what God's revealed will is for our lives. And so Abram, with the promise that God had given him some 10 years earlier, he says to God in verse 2, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Again, he's recalling that it was 10 years prior that God had promised innumerable descendants. And yet Abram says, I'm continuing to be childless. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Um, what Abram is actually asking God here is, God, what's your plan? God, I've been waiting for 10 years and nothing's happening. And um, God, I, I want to know what your plan is. You know, I couldn't help but thinking yesterday that Abram's question of God was similar to the reporter's question that was posed to Deborah Hersman, the chairman of the National Transportation, National Transportation Safety Board, just five hours after yesterday's crash landing in San Francisco. 
And Hersman was holding a press conference there in Washington, D.C., just prior to her team leaving for the investigation in San Francisco. And as Hersman was uh, giving this press conference, this briefing of how the investigation would proceed and uh, what areas that they would cover in their investigation, uh, she said that they would be examining areas of human performance, uh, survival factors, airport operations, aircraft systems, structures, and power plants, air traffic control operations, weather, and maintenance issues. And then she asked the reporters if there were any questions. And one reporter asked, do you think that this crash was due to pilot error? And ignoring that reporter's questions in light of the fact that this was only five hours after the crash, and she had just detailed what they were going to cover in the investigation, Hersman merely said, are there any other questions? You know, God could have done the same thing with Abram, couldn't he have? God had made that promise to Abram 10 years prior. And though 10 years had passed, 10 long years, 10 years of Abram wondering, what is God doing if in fact he's doing anything? The waiting. And then Abram speaks up and says, God, what's your plan? And how easily God could have just said, are there any other questions? But no. Look at how God patiently responds to Abram's question. Says, this man, Eleazar, who is a servant in your home, he will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, and then he said, so shall your offspring be. The patience of God. The patience of God. You know, somebody had once said, uh, we are not so much children with whom God is well pleased as much as we are, where we are not so much obedient children with whom God is well pleased as much as we are disobedient children with whom God is long-suffering. The long-suffering of God and the impatience of his people. Woe be to us that we would ever be impatient with God in his ways, in his will for our lives. You know, it's like Paul says in Romans that, you know, does the clay speak back to the potter? Why did you make me this way? Or what are you doing? I think of the prophet Habakkuk, where he looked at the injustices all around him, the suffering of the nation of Israel, and he asked two questions. God, 
how long are you going to let this go on? And what in the world are you doing about it? Waiting on the will of God. Notice Abraham takes God at his word in verse 6. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's belief in God. And though Abram was asking a question from his limited understanding of God's will for his life, Abraham took God at his word and he believed him. This fact that it is credited to him as righteousness, it's, it's an accounting term here. Your Bible may say that he reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, that it was Abraham's belief and his belief and trust in God alone that God would credit Abram's sin debit account, that in accounting terms, he would balance the books. You know, the question is, is how does any Old Testament saint become acceptable to God? And we see it right here. It's by faith. In the same vein, how is it then that any New Testament saint becomes acceptable to God? Well, Paul reiterated what Abram said, what it said about Abram here over in Romans chapter 4, that it's by faith, that it's by trust and belief in God, taking God at his word and trusting that he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. You know, I ask you today, what is your ledger account with God? Is there a debit in the column because of your sin? Not because you do sin, but because you're born a sinner. That you and I, in our sin, are born behind the eight ball, so to speak. Right here, God is telling us how we can balance the ledger that by faith in God, trusting in God, taking God at his word, of what he says that he did through Christ, by Christ dying on a cross to pay the penalties for your sin that you could not pay for yourself. It's trust, it's belief, it's by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is not as a result of any work, lest any man should boast. By grace, by the grace of God, through faith. You know, it's interesting how uh, as God is reiterating to Abram here of what he had told him 10 years earlier, not only that he would have descendants and a multitude of descendants, but it says specifically in verse 4, a son coming from your own body. 
not a servant that you purchased, but a son from your own body. You know, when we talk about God's hidden will for our lives and the fact that that will is known after the fact, and yet how God's will is a progressive revelation to us, is it not? How God reveals to us ultimately is his will unfolds for our lives, and I'm speaking of his hidden will. Uh, I think, for example, in my own case, how in 1979, a man by the name of George Rutenbar, who was the assistant to Dr. Walvoord at Dallas Seminary, a friend of ours, and how one night he sat across the table from me and challenged me to think about going to seminary and into full-time ministry. And I have to admit that that was the furthest thing from my mind at that time. I was involved in ministry in a lay capacity, and I was only happy to continue to do so in that capacity. And yet God's progressive revelation of his will led me in 1995 to begin my studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. In 1997, I was able to secure a part-time position in ministry at a church here in San Antonio, and then in 2005 that I came on staff here at Wayside in full-time ministry. You know, back in 1979, I could not have told you what God's hidden will for me was, and yet I can stand here today and lay it out so clearly to you. Abraham believed, and God reckoned it to him or credited it to his account as righteousness. You know, Abraham goes on, and it says that he received a covenant from God. In verse 9, it says, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought, Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. It says that as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, 
and said, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. You know, as here God is ratifying this covenant with, with Abram. And as these animals are split in half and laid out, and that as we see the, the, uh, the fire and the smoke passing between them, this was a custom at that time um, that it was a demonstration of those who would enter into an agreement or a covenant together. They were symbolizing as they walked between the pieces, let this happen to me, what's happened to these animals, if I violate the terms of this covenant. And so we see God in the torch and in the smoke passing through between the pieces, ratifying this covenant with Abram. Let's fast forward. Chapter 16 says that now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Abram is faced with a critical decision here, is he not? That here God has promised innumerable descendants that he has revealed progressively, even beyond that, that it would not be the servant in Abram's household who would be his heir, but that Abram would actually have a son from Abram's own body. And so Abram waits again. And in the waiting they take matters into their own hands. Sarai, seeing that she is still without child, decides that, as the custom was of that day, to give her servant Hagar to her husband Abram for him to conceive a child with her. And even though this may have been the custom and the practice of the day, it was still adultery in the eyes of the Lord nonetheless. That Abram and Sarai, in taking matters into their own hands, would make a fateful decision that would have negative consequences. And so it is that Abram agrees, he sleeps with Hagar, she conceives. And you know, when it comes to God's will for our lives, his hidden will, 
How many times is it that we grow impatient with God? Maybe it's concerning a job. Maybe it's a decision about education and where to go to school. Maybe it's the decision of a life mate. Whatever. Those hidden will, that God's hidden will, that we can grow impatient when God is not moving as fast as we think he needs to be moving. And we too can make the error of taking matters into our own hands. Let me remind you that God is in no hurry. God is not bounded or limited by space and time. We know that with God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And woe be to us when we grow impatient with God's hidden will for our lives, and we begin to take matters into our own hands as Abram and Sarai did. What are those negative consequences? In verse 4, it says that when she knew she was pregnant, when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She began to look down on Sarai. And Sarai, then, it says, says to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Did I miss something? I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but then it goes on to say, your servant is in your hands, Abram says. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So we have the servant looking down on her master, Sarai. We have the, the friction between Abram and Sarai. And then we have Hagar, the, the victim. Uh, negative consequences to a bad choice. Note the fact that it goes on to say that the Lord has compassion on Hagar. And in fact, he goes to Hagar and he tells her that uh, that son will, as it says here, you shall name him Ishmael in verse 12. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Uh, we know from history that this is the beginning of the uh, Arab nations and that conflict, as we all know, continues to this day between the sons of Ishmael 
and the sons of Isaac. But the Lord says that I will, this son also that you have born will be a multitude, uh, that your descendants, his descendants, will be a great nation. And so it says in verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And now we fast forward some 13 years. Chapter 17 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and blameless. And I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And so it is that God reiterates the covenant that he has made with Abram. He goes on to say that this confirmation of the covenant, um, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, or father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be your God. And so it is that God's progressive revelation of his hidden will is made even further known to Abram. You know, I think about what Kathy and I, uh, following our first child, Katie, back in 1981, you know, we assumed that you get married, you have kids, you raise the kids, you move them on out of the house, um, so on and so forth. You know the fire drill. And yet we did not know God's hidden will for our lives because following Katie's birth, some year later, uh, we got pregnant again and there was a miscarriage. And then sometime later, we got pregnant again, and there was another miscarriage. And then we were pregnant again, and a third miscarriage. I could not have told you what God's revealed will, or God's hidden will was for our life then, but I can sure tell you what it is now as I look back, as we look back. During that time of waiting on God, and little did we know that he would bless us with three more children, but there were things that Kathy and I needed to learn. There were things that we needed to learn about ourselves. 
There were things that we needed to learn about God. And so it was during that time of waiting on the will of God that God taught us wonderful things about himself. There was a psalm that I preached on last year, Psalm 73, that is still so near and dear to our hearts. Because it was through that time of waiting on the will of God. And I don't pretend to say that our waiting was without impatience. Because we didn't know what was going on. And yet now we can look back and see the wonderful things that God taught us. Through that Psalm 73, where the psalmist says, Besides thee, I desire nothing else. Even as noble as it is to desire children, because children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is the reward. What could be more noble than that? And yet, desiring that, desiring what God gives more than desiring God himself was something that we needed to learn. And so it was that in our waiting on the will of God, we learned wonderful things about our God. In your waiting on the will of God, that is the place that God comes and meets with his people. That is the place where our hearts are tested of what it is that we're truly living for. And it's in those times of waiting on the will of God that God shows up in a big way to teach us things not only about ourselves, but to teach us things more importantly about him. Abraham receives the confirmation of the covenant, and so it is that God lays out for him that this will be the sign of the covenant between you and me, that you and all the males in your household would be circumcised. And Abram learns a lesson waiting on the will of God, where over in verse 23 it says, On that very day Abram took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household and bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God had told him. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abram and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abram's house, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Ultimately, Abram receives the son of promise, where over in Genesis 21, we read, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abram gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abram circumcised him as God commanded him. Abram 
Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Waiting on the will of God. Waiting for the son of promise. You know, sometimes I think that when it comes to God's will, we can wind up waiting for the wrong thing. I think of years ago, Kathy and I had the privilege of going to the Hawaiian Islands. And on the island of Maui, we had heard that the Haleakala Crater, uh, over 10,000 feet in elevation, that one of the spectacular things to do was to get up early and make the two-hour drive up to the summit of that crater and watch the sunrise. You can imagine what time we had to get up to be able to drive across the island and reach that crater's summit. And as we stood there with a couple, there were some friends that were with us, we were surprised because there was hardly anybody in the parking lot. And there were just a just a handful of people. And so we joined them as we're looking off in one direction and we see this faint light. Instead of increasing, it was becoming fainter and fainter. And to our realization, we realized that we were watching the moon go down behind the horizon. And as we turned around across the parking lot was this crowd watching as the sun was coming up behind us. (laughs) Yes, sometimes we can be waiting for the wrong thing. And when it comes to God's will, when it comes to God's hidden will, we don't need to be waiting. Because He's given us his revealed will. As Will pointed out last week, his desire for us, his will is our sanctification. His revealed will for us is that we would become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's where our preoccupation needs to be. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And whatever his hidden will is for us, we can accept that and accept that graciously from a gracious God who desires nothing more than our highest good and our Christ-likeness. And as we transition to the Lord's table today, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 4, where Paul, speaking of Abraham, he says the following. He says, this is why it was credited to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, not for Abraham alone, but also for us, for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was 
delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. As we celebrate the Lord's table today, this is the table of the Lord, not the table of Wayside Chapel. And for all who have put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, he bids you come and participate in this memorial. Men, would you pass the elements?
Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, met with his disciples in the upper room. And as he broke the bread, he said, This bread represents my body, which was broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance. In the same way, he took the cup, said, This represents my blood that is shed for you. Take and drink of it. Will you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for our Savior. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that he came to do the will of the one who sent him. Thank you, Father, for his sacrifice on our behalf on Calvary's cross and that by faith that it's credited to us as righteousness. To the Lord Jesus Christ we pray, amen. May the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Have a great day and a wonderful week. Thank you.